Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books Network, Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series. You can read more about my work at GabrielleMatthew.com. Follow me on Twitter to receive updates about new podcasts. That's at GabrielleAuthor, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, capital A. U-T-H-O-R. I'll be interviewing Patrice Seraf today about her new release, The Sisters Medeiros. This is a particular pleasure for me, as Patrice was one of the first serious writers I met back in the mid-90s when I lived in Austin, Texas, where she still resides. So a little about Patrice. She works as an editor in addition to writing. Her novels include the book we'll be discussing today, the Sisters Medeiros, which is book one of the tales of Port St. Frey. She also wrote the books of Gordath, which include Gordath Wood, Red Gold Bridge, and A Crow God's Girl. And the romance, The Unexpected Miss Bennet. Her short stories have appeared in several magazines and anthologies, including Weird Tales, Blackgate, Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, Realms of Fantasy, and many others. To follow Patrice on Twitter, look for at Patrice Seraf. Her website is patriceseraf.com. Her name is spelled P-A-T-R-I-C-E, last name S-A-R-A-T-H. Now to the review. There is something almost sweetly Victorian about the new fantasy novel, The Sisters Medeiros. It concerns two young sisters enduring misfortune. The opening chapters reminded me of the childhood classic, The Little Princess, published in 1905. Evienne and her magical sister, Tessera, daughters of a once-rich trading family, are sent to a school for paupers when her family is accused by creditors hungry for their downfall. In the tradition of some YA novels, Evienne and Tessera's parents are inept and depressed, and her uncle Samuel is a foolish lecher, forcing the young girls to shoulder responsibility for each other. Into their miserable lives comes Matilda, a cheery housekeeper who knows how to do much on a shoestring budget and is capable of putting Uncle Samuel in his place. This charming novel avoids disturbing and tragic scenes. The worst that happens is that one heron is forced to serve some merchant's dinner while wearing a maid's uniform and being mocked. Amorous adventures are discreetly referred to as sparking without more graphic details. We may have come up with the analog of the cozy mystery here, a tale gripping enough to keep you reading at night and hoping for the exposure of the villain but a story that takes place in a familiar and nostalgic setting, even if it is a fantasy one. 
So without further ado, let me get Patrice talking with us about this book. Thanks for joining us today, Patrice. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. And Patrice is going to read from her new book to introduce it to our listeners. Yes, this is the prologue to the Sisters Maderos, and it sets the stage six years before the uh, main action of the story. Tessara woke with a gasp, blinking in the dimmed candlelight as her mother shook her awake. Mama, up to Sarah and be quick. You need to get dressed. No, don't bother with clothes from the wardrobe. Put on, yes- on yesterday's dress. Confused, Tessara did as she was told, grabbing the shift and petticoat and stockings from the day before and began to fumble into them. In the meantime, Alaness set the candle on the table and began stuffing a nightgown, extra underthings, her hairbrush and ribbons, toothbrush and tooth powder, and another second dress in a carpet bag. Tessara had never seen her mother pack so haphazardly. Indeed, she had never seen her mother pack at all. Where was Jenny, the housemaid? When her mother saw she was only half-dressed, she tisked and roughly put the dress over Tessara's head, forcing her arms into the sleeves. Tessara knew better than to complain. Are we going on holiday? She asked, confused and frightened. I'll explain later. Hurry. Alanis buttoned up the back of Tessara's dress, leaving half the buttons undone, grabbed a warm coat, and thrust the carpet bag at Tessara. She took up the lamp again and led the way downstairs. The candlelight flickered bravely but could not illuminate the staircase, so Tessara kept one hand on the wall, her fingers throbbing with energy. Not now, she thought. Please, not now. Of all the times for her wild power to manifest, this moment would be significantly unhelpful. The whole house was dark. Tessara followed her mother closely, stumbling a little, and they went into the kitchen. It was crowded. Her father, Brevart, was there, along with her uncle, Samuel, the butler, Char, Albero, the footman, Cook, her nurse, nurse Michelina, and her big sister, Evienne. The family and Michelina were all dressed in their day clothes and warm coats. The stout old nurse was dressed for traveling in an ancient wool walking coat that strained over her bulk. Evienne carried a carpet bag and a heavy satchel. She brought her books, Tessara thought. She wondered what she should bring, and her mind went blank. Only her fingers buzzed with electricity like bees under the skin. Here now, Brev, what's going on, Uncle Samuel said with his usual bluster. There came a rapping on the kitchen door and everyone started. The carter's here, sir, says Charles, as if he were saying, your coach awaits. Thank you, Charles, Brevart said. He took a deep breath, his eyes hollow and strained in the dim light. Thank you all for your service. He reached out and shook Charles' hand. Cook was crying. We cannot give you. Banging on the front door made him break off. A distant voice cried, open in the name of the guild. Alaness gasped, we've been betrayed. Hurry, we must hurry, Brevart said. Girls, go with your mother and Michalina, quick now. Tessara and Evienne were hustled to the kitchen door. The knocking grew louder. It sounded as if something heavy were being rammed against the door. Samwell Ballinshard, we have a warrant for your arrest, came a shout from the front door. Uncle Samwell turned ash and white and his legs gave way. He supported himself at the kitchen table. It's Troon. Tessara's parents froze. Tessara whimpered. Troon, the guild liaison who enforced the guild's law and punished transgressors whom she heard her parents refer to as the guild's attack dog? Troon, who knew what Tessara had done. In extreme fear, Samuel turned to his sister and brother-in-law. Breath, he managed. Alaness, shall I hold them off, sir? Charles said, a determined look belying his robe and slippers. The footman, Albero, barely 17, clenched his fist as if he meant to take on the guild's constables by himself. There was a crash and the whole house shuddered. They're breaking in, Michalina cried. Alaness, love, come with me and the girls. 
Alanis wavered. She looked at her husband and a glance passed between them. In her young life, Tassara had never seen her parents give each, each other such a look of determined partnership. There had always been bickering and a simmering unhappiness, even more so since their troubles began. The trouble I caused. Tassara bit her lip. Let the girls go away to safety, said Alanis. I stand with you in House Madero's. Michalina began to weep. Tassara thought it sounded the same sort of forced weeping when she didn't get her way. Tassara had grown up knowing that Michalina's loyalty was all for Alanis, not for Alanis's daughters, and that Michalina thought Tassara naughty and Ivian hurt. Why does she have to come with us, she thought. I'll go, Samuel said, his voice panicky. I'll go with the girls, protect them, for God's sakes, Brevard. No, Alanis said. No, Sam, the girls go alone. We will face this together. Brevard nodded and took his wife's hand. That's all well and good for you, her younger brother screamed. They're going to throw me in jail. Another blow on the front door. Everyone jumped. Go, Alaness ordered. Be good, girls. Listen to Michalina. It is very good of her to take you to her niece. We'll call for you as soon as it's safe. They were pushed out the door and into the garden. Tassara looked back, struggling to hold onto her carpet bag and stumbling and getting a glimpse of her parents in the dim light of the kitchen before the door was closed. Then they were through the garden gate and into the alley behind the house. They could hear the commotion at the front door more clearly. And that's where I'll end it for now, because I think that just gives you a good idea of what the story is about and how it begins. Yes, and it also introduces the different characters of the sisters. I do notice in this reading that Evian grabs her books, I believe. Yes, she does. Well, after describing your novel as sweetly Victorian, I realized why certain elements seem so nostalgically familiar. It's a fantasy of manners, a term that was new to me. Could you explain to our listeners what a fantasy of manners is and how you came to write one? Well, I, I've always written fantasy, and I'm also a big fan of Jane Austen and Georgette Heyer and uh, the novels of like Victoria Holt and the other Gothic writers, Martha, uh, Mary Stewart, those, those writers. They were a big influence on me. And to me, a fantasy of manners are, is what you would call a drawing room novel. Um, it's all about conversation. It's about a plot that is not so much one of action, but one of inner action, inner concerns, generally considered feminine or female concerns, but no less important. Um, I think that uh, books like um, you know, uh, Jane Austen, they take on the very serious business of, of emotional life. And so what I did was I wanted to take that sort of novel and add fantasy to it, add a little bit of magic to it. Well, and there is some action too for our listeners. It's not, it's not all just conversation. There's plenty of daring do. Yes, of course. That's where the that's where the gothic comes in, right? That's where that's where um, you know the the uh, action, girls in peril, and taking right, and and taking taking um, their sa their salvation into their own hands. That's where that. Comes in. Speaking of uh, taking action into their own hands, I'm going to skip ahead to one of my other questions because that's a good segue. Like some other herons, and most famously, this is a totally different novel, but Katniss of the Hunger Games, Evian and Teresa's parents and uncle are an impediment rather than a source of support to their children. 
And to what extent does this echo your own observations about families? It actually is my observation about young adult or children's literature. The orphan always has adventures. The first thing that you have to do when writing stories about children who are coming of age, whether they're children or whether they're teenagers, is you have to get rid of the parents. Um, well, the boxcar children, um, you know, uh, uh, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, uh, Anne of Green Gables, Harry Potter. Um, the, the adventures only happen when the parents are are either dead or they have become so ineffectual, as in Katniss in the, in the Hunger Games. Her mother is uh, completely incapacitated and cannot help at all. Um, and when you have that, that's when you set children on a path toward adventure. Now, in real life, <laughs> ineffectual parents have a, have a more detrimental effect on growing up. But that's why we're writing fantasy and adventure, right? That's, that's, why we're, that's why we're looking at it this way. So it's following that tradition. That's a good point. Yeah, With a, in a normally functional family, uh, the kids aren't going to be taking matters into their own hands and having adventures too much. Right. And then, but how, how much fun is that? You know, oh yeah, I woke up and I went to school and things like that. Yeah. You know, this, this is why we write escapist literature. And your book is fantasy, as you said, though your world has many recognizable elements, such as coffee, very important, and sweet shops and pubs. It is a world that contains magic. Is magic a suppressed or forbidden part of the society you've created? So here's what I think. Magic in this world is forgotten. There's no longer a relationship with it that, is, that makes it um, something that people are aware of. It's, now, in book two, uh, I introduce more and different magical elements, which shows that in the wider world, in which I've set uh, Port St. Frey, um, magic is known um, and it is practiced in other ways. But in Port St. Frey, um, these merchants are very pragmatic and what they don't understand and can't monetize, they don't see. So um, as we see in, in the novel, Tessara has magic that she herself finds very uncomfortable because she thinks she's the only person with it. Now, as it turns out, that's not the case. Um, and uh, she discovers, you know, that there are more people out there who have another relationship with these powers or powers like hers. Um, but in general, it's more that because these merchants are uh, preoccupied with other matters, they don't see it. Um, that would make sense. One of the strongest parts of your story is the relationship between two very different sisters, Yvienne and Tessera. Tell us a bit about these women and uh, tell us about the sources of inspiration for them and sisterhood. Um, so I have two sisters. There are three of us. Uh, and I also have four brothers, very large family. Um, I've always been inspired by my sisters. I'm the youngest of the three of us. And uh, they are both very strong very bookish, uh, very determined. Um, I'm the one who's kind of fuzzy headed. I think. Um, I'm, <laughs> really? I'm kind of the dreamer and they were always the ones who went out and did what they needed to do. And, and uh, I always, always looked up to them. So in a sense, they're both Ivienne. And I would say that Tassara is closest to me. 
uh, in that, you know, she's the one who's kind of a wool gatherer, you know, uh, Ibian looks at her and thinks, oh, how am I going to take care of her? She, you know, when she's, when they go to that terrible girls' school, they, Ibian wants to look out for mm-hmm. her and Tassar is just sort of, you know, off in her own little world. Um, and I think that that, uh, that, so I was inspired by my sisters. Um, I think that we are seeing more stories about women and their strongest relationships with um, the, with their sisters as opposed to a romantic relationship. And I think that's good. I think that we're exploring other ways that love can manifest and how strong it is because um, as much as I love romance, it's nice to see other um, uh, other forms of friendship and love. Exactly. And that brings me to the next point. Friendship plays a role, not just sisterhood, and romance is a distant third, which is always refreshing for a change right. since so many books and movies are totally romance-oriented. You had friendship in your book. Matilda, the maid, soon becomes friends with Evian, and Tessera finds her own champion in the person of a wealthy young flirt. Did you intentionally set out to create a novel that focuses more on the relationships between women rather than depending on steamy Absolutely, absolutely. Um, As I said, I love romance. I love reading them. I love writing romance. Uh, It's always going to be important. I think it's fun. But my own friendships with women of all different um, kinds, you know, people I work with, people, uh, you know, I have a a friendship with just outside of work through shared interests, not even through shared interests, just people who come together because we connect on that level. Um, friendship, women's friendships are, uh, extremely strong and they're often underrated. Um, and now we're start underrated, not by the women who are in them, but by maybe society. Um, and, and I think, Mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing, we're recognizing that more, uh, television shows are really focusing on the friendships, um, with women. There's one in the U S called playing house that, that absolutely the strongest uh, relationship is between two female friends. Um, and I, I absolutely wanted to uh, explore that, the, the ways in which uh, women are friends, the forms that those friendships take. Um, Ivian is, of course, friends with Matilda. She finds her very capable. Matilda, of course, is um, not perhaps all that she appears. Um, and Tessara, <laughs> and Tessara is very good friends with Mirandine, who is, uh, yeah, she is um, someone who she um, she likes very much. She's uh, excited by. They um, they have adventures together. And uh, Mirandine is, is kind of a poor little rich girl herself, but she has inner strengths. So uh, definitely, yes, I wanted to look at the way women can be friends and have valuable relationships that way. Well, our young heroines' lack of social status is a disappointment for them, perhaps more for Tessera, but for both of them. They can't afford pralines, old dresses must be rescued from the attic and patched up for festivities, and for a long time, the calling cards for parties just don't come. How relevant do you think calling cards and ball gowns are for today's generation? I think that being left out is a feeling that that a lot of teenagers feel and, you know, uh, people in their 20s as well, knowing that um, 
you are not in the in crowd, whatever that crowd is. I think that that's something that is relevant to everyone. Everyone can relate to that feeling, um, you know, where you're, you're on the outside looking in. Uh, their lack of social status is less a disappointment than it is um, a pragmatic sort of realization that if they want to regain um, the levels that they had once they had once you know taken for granted, they're going to have to work at it. So they use certain things as tools. Um, when it when Tessara. Uh, um, rescues an old dress from the attic and uh, in the end, you know, has other things going on. Um, it's it's less about, oh, I wish I had nicer clothes. It's more that, oh, every time I put on a dress, I am reminded that I'm an outsider now. Um, and, and I think that mm-hmm. in many cases, um, so I set a lot of scenes over the breakfast table or the dinner table. That was the drawing room manners, you know, fantasy manners sort of uh, aspect of it. And that's because I wanted them to see that um, it wasn't the poverty that was the problem. It was their parents' approach to it. Like, I think their parents uh, mm-hmm. are impacted more by the lack of social status than the girls are. I really do. I think the girls are like, okay, now we have to go and get it ourselves. And the parents are just completely incapacitated by what has happened. And they don't even know that their daughters are saving them. They just, they, they can't even figure it out. The girls were resilient, as young people are, and the mother seemed very brittle. Yes. Fragile, almost. Uh, I think the girls were just happy when the breakfasts got better. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> I think they were. Well, certainly Uncle Samuel was, which was much happier when the breakfasts got better. Yes, at least one of his appetites got fed. Yes, yes, absolutely. Poor Uncle Samwell. He was a character who I enjoyed writing the most because I didn't think he was going to be anything except for a boob. And then he turned out to have hidden depth. So uh, I, I have a fondness for him. Yeah, we might be hearing more about him in the next book, I'm thinking, since oh, yes. he does have those hidden depths. Yes, he does. Yeah. Well, your publisher this time around is Angry Robot, a UK-based publisher. Your last fantasy series was put out by Ace Paperbacks, I believe. Yes. Do you think this is a fantasy that's more suited to British tastes or Anglophiles? I think the latter. I think to Anglophiles, there are plenty in the U.S. Uh, Again, it goes back to that Georgette Hare, Jane Austen, uh, you know, uh, fan base. Um, And... And boy, in the U.S., there are plenty of fans of Jane Austen and Georgette Hare. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more the Anglophile, the, the people who love Regency romances and will read anything that has, you know, oh, Regency era about it. Um, I think that people who love um, have always enjoyed Dickens, which I, I'm a big fan of Charles Dickens as well. Uh, that sort of rags to riches. Yes, that rags to riches story that he does so well. Uh, I think that they'll like this. Um, and I think people who, who come at it um, out of the fantasy uh, genre, uh, there's a lot of cross-reading, um, fantasy, romance. Uh, there are a lot of people who read in both genres. So I think that they're all going to enjoy. Um, as for Angry Robot, it, they are, yes, they're based in the U.S., but they are as global a press as you can imagine. Um, their books are everywhere. And so 
they I, I don't I don't know that it was the kind of the British sort of um, flavor of the story that attracted them less than they really liked the fantasy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and I'm gathering the Sister Medoras is the first in a series, yes. right? Yes, it is. So th- this is um, the Tales of Port St. Frey. Uh, next uh, next year, the second book in the series is called Fog Season. It's coming out and it's more about the adventures of the two sisters and um, some additional characters and um, uh, sort of the activities of book one. Well, um, the results of those activities are uh, those chickens come home to roost, as they say. Mm-hmm. Okay, everybody gets their just desserts, hopefully, or or, or somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Are you working on a second book now, or is that already written? The book is written, and it's going to come out next year. I am working on the third book in the series. Um, it's in the uh, outline stage, but generally, uh, my outlining is more like I'll start with an idea, and then I just completely go off for what the, whatever the characters want to do. So, <laughs> at this point, even I, I, I hope my publisher is. Um, too concerned at this point. I even I don't know exactly what is going to happen in uh, book three, uh, three of the uh, tales of Port Saint Frey, but it will still be the sisters, and uh, they will still be saving their family. Well, we look forward to reading more about them, and thanks so much for joining me today, Patrice. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me today. We've been talking to author Patrice Seraf about her new fantasy novel, The Sisters Madeiras. Again, you can find out more about Patrice at patriceseraf.com or follow her on Twitter. Her name is spelled P-A-T-R-I-C-E, last name S-A-R-A-T-H. And I'm Gabrielle, the author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series, which includes The Falcon Flies Alone and The Falcon Strikes. You can follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts. That's at Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Join me next month when we talk with author Nancy Springer about her new fantasy novel. Thanks for joining us.